0: Hello and welcome to a special episode of Beyond the Headlines. I'm your host, Taya Koper. Beyond the Headlines is a weekly current affairs show that aims to make public policy discussions more accessible to you. We take you beyond the headlines of our daily news, bringing you access to current leaders through in-depth interviews. You can join us in the conversation by tweeting at beyond underscore headlines. That's B-Y-O-N-D underscore headlines.
1: Stay
2: in. Falling back to basics, like ashes
0: in the face of it The COVID-19 pandemic has wreaked havoc across broad swaths of the Canadian economy. The consequences of the current recession are complex and overlapping, and range from widespread job losses to a prolonged contraction of the country's economy. Experts on the Hill and in the private sector have pointed to the vital role that infrastructure investment must play in Canada's economic recovery plan. But it has to be smart. Stakeholders must pay attention to environmental and social considerations at every stage of project development. Now is the chance to create a bold, new vision for Canadian infrastructure investment. A few weeks ago, senior producer Duncan Cooper sat down with Michael Sabia, veteran infrastructure executive and current director of the Monk School of Global Affairs and Public Policy, to discuss these issues and chart a course forward for Canada's recovery. From March 2009 to January 2020, Michael Sabia served as president and CEO of the Case de Dépôt et Placement du Québec, where he oversaw its strategic direction and global
1: growth. Thank you so much, uh, Mr. Sabia, for being here today. Happy to do it. So to start off, I was wondering if you could give our listeners a brief summary of your background in infrastructure, investment, and procurement.
2: Sure. Sure. Um... That really dates from the um, years I spent at uh, La Caisse de Dépôt in in Quebec, or CDPQ, as we now call it. Um, That's a $350 billion uh, investment fund, pension fund, that's invested around the world. And while I was there, we uh, became a pretty substantial um, investor in infrastructure on a pretty global basis in a lot of different countries. Um, and then more recently, I've uh, since I left CDPQ, um, I've become also the chair of the Canada Infrastructure Bank. So, uh, you know, those experiences have shown me how important infrastructure is and how it really is the, the backbone of, uh, of the real economy. And increasingly today, I think the backbone of the digital economy. Um, so a really, really fundamental part of uh of economic life of the potential for growth in an economy uh a really important structuring element of our economic lives
1: so i want to ask then um given the way things are changing how is this recession different from the 2008 financial crisis uh and how exactly must our strategy be different in order to respond to that
2: yeah that's a that's a Very good question. And I I think it's different in in many respects. Uh, First, the 2008 financial crisis was, it had its roots in um, problems, excessive risk taking, excessive leverage uh, in the financial system itself. There was a real financial problem uh, there that caused the financial system to seize up and therefore caused the real economy to to seize up. But there was something, there was an event that occurred, a problem that occurred uh, in the broader financial and economic Mm -hmm. system itself, which was the trigger point. This situation, um, the COVID situation is very different. It did not, it does not have its origins in an economic or financial problem. It has its origins in a completely exogenous health crisis. Uh, which then, in order to deal with the health crisis, as everyone knows now, has imposed on us all some very substantial economic costs, uh, resulting from, in effect, the shutdown of, uh, well, in many ways, the shutdown of the global economy. So the origins of the two are very, very different. And I think that partly explains um, why we've seen as economies have begun to open, now not not in a simple way and not easily. And that's why you know, we're seeing and living through the second wave now. But as we have seen some opening, we've also seen, I think this is true really across um, uh, the advanced economies of the world. We've seen a pretty sharp uh, snapback of, the, of, of economic performance. Now we're not fully recovered. There's still lots of issues, but the speed of recovery this time has been faster than the speed of recovery was after the 2008 financial crisis. And that I think largely has its origins in the fact that this is a purely exogenous uh, problem. Whereas in 2008, there were problems inherent in the financial and economic system that had to be worked out. So that's, that's one or two important differences. Another one is the, Normally, recessions show themselves first on, if I can put it this way, in the goods-producing side of an, of of the economy. This time, it's been very different. In fact, and it and it's been services that have been impacted um, and very very sharply. Typically, in a normal quote unquote recession, goods get affected, but services stay relatively stable. While well, it's the reverse this time, um, and that gives rise to you know, all of the very serious consequences that we've seen um, in the in hospitality and accommodation in restaurants, across a number of small businesses, um, et cetera, which is very different than what we've seen in, in previous uh, re- recessions. So all of that then leads me to the third and final one. Um, you know, what we saw coming out of the 2008, 2009 financial crisis was a lot of action on the part of uh, central banks uh, to substantially ease up monetary policy. That was necessary. It's had lots of consequences, but it was certainly necessary. What we didn't see so much coming out of the 2008, 2009 crisis was a very strong fiscal policy response. Um, There was some, but not enough. This time, Uh, Yes, we've seen very accommodative um, monetary policy, but importantly, given how low interest rates already were, this time we've also seen, and this is true across the world, of a really massive fiscal policy response. Uh, And that too has contributed to that snapback um, in all of our economies that I mentioned a couple of minutes ago. So 2008, 2009, Policy response, largely monetary policy. This time, monetary policy plus massive fiscal policy. Uh, And that, too, I think is a very, very important difference between the two.
1: Mm -hmm. So keeping with that theme, then, I wonder, with respect to the immense consequences of this crisis, um, are there any lessons that can be drawn from this moment about our pre-COVID paradigm?
2: Yeah, I think there are many. Um, I'm only going. I'll only touch on a few of them. Uh, First, this crisis has laid bare the the increasingly important problem of inequality in all of these uh, advanced uh, Western economies. That was there before. it was a, a growing preoccupation before, and rightly so. But this crisis has really put it in, in bold relief, um, and by that I mean we've seen it, it, through the impact on the service sector, um, where there are, those are high employment sectors, but they're also relatively low, low wage sectors. So as as restaurants have closed, uh, other things have had to close. The hospitality and accommodation industries have had to close. All of those workers um, who have been earning lower wages—that they have really borne the substantial brunt um, of this. That's also true for women, uh, who again are disproportionately employed in those in those in those sectors. It's true for. Uh, immigrants, new immigrants, new Canadians, in the case of Canada, who also have uh, borne the brunt. So one undeniable lesson of this is the continuing and growing problem of inequality in our societies, which must be addressed. So that's number one. Number two, you know, I think through the period of uh, the last 20 years, uh, when you know we were very focused on the efficiency gains that globalization would pay us. Um, I think, and then you see that, for instance, in the globalization of supply chains uh, and the growing complexity of supply chains. And one of the, the other lessons I think that we've seen in this crisis is that you know there's a balance to be struck between efficiency and resilience. Um, and a good example of that is at the beginning of this crisis, um, when many countries were in where protective equipment for frontline healthcare workers was in very short supply, that was a function of highly distributed supply chains. And I think now one of the messages and one of the lessons that we need to take from this is you know, we have to balance these things. Yes, economic efficiency is really important, but so is uh, resilience and our capacity to deliver essential goods. And in each, in each country's case, to, to, to have that capacity to generate those, those, those really essential um, items. So that's the second one, this question about resilience. And then the third and last one, um, and that's really this very broad question about economic growth. Uh, this crisis has certainly scarred all of the advanced economies, and it has probably lowered Uh, Potential rates of growth. And that lowering of potential rates of growth is, I think, a serious issue because growth rates were already pretty low. And you know, growth is what makes liberal democracies work uh, in many ways. Now, I think the way we've been growing hasn't been the right way. And I think we have to be more concerned, as I said, about inclusiveness and equality and resilience, et cetera. But growth itself is important. And as that As our growth potential gets impacted negatively as a result of this, I think that, too, puts on the public agenda this very important issue of where will all these economies, where will we find the next generation of growth? So inequality, resilience, and growth seem to me to be three very important lessons uh, to be drawn out of this. Um,
1: particularly uh, relevant to the question of growth. uh, Do you think that the new wave of sustainable finance uh, represents a new model that can be widespread in Canada? Uh, And I'm speaking more specifically to the changing nature of fiduciary duty becoming a deciding factor in um, investment and economic development decisions uh, across the world.
2: Yeah, um, so, I think to answer that question, I think we need to, we need to stand back a little bit. Um, you know, what's the, wh- one of the things that we've lost over the last, I would say, 30 years, um, maybe 40 years, is we've lost something very, very fundamental. And that is, what's the role of a financial system in a market economy like ours? The answer is pretty simple. Uh, The answer is the role of a financial system is to facilitate, to support growth in the real economy. The financial system is like a circulatory system for a body. Um, But over the last, as I say, 30, 40 years, we've kind of lost sight of that. And the financial system has become a thing unto itself, Um, a source of profits, a source of great complexity, a source of systemic risk but we've lost the notion that it really exists to serve the interests of the real economy and growth in the real economy. Now, why do I say that? I say that because to more directly answer your question, I do think what's going on now is quite important um, because I think what we're inching toward, inching I say, is a model of I can put it this way, sustainable finance for sustainable growth. And that linkage is, to my mind, absolutely fundamental. Um, And I do think everything that's happened, both following the financial crisis, in this crisis, uh, it is causing us to move toward um, a rediscovery of the fact that finance must serve the interests of the real economy. Finance just cannot serve its own interests. Now, more specifically on this issue about this very good question you ask about fiduciary duty. You know, that sounds, um, I don't know, kind of legalistic and and technical, but um, it's very important. And how fiduciary duty is defined, because in many countries, And until very recently, fiduciary duty has been defined very, very narrowly, Uh, basically uh, to act in the interests of stockholders, to act in the interests of the owners of companies. That's far too narrow a definition of a fiduciary duty, because companies are, in effect, social institutions. Uh, They hire people, they invest, they generate research and development, they play an important social function. And so the duty of the people who run them and boards who oversee them needs to reflect that breadth. And I think, again, uh, what's going on now is we are seeing, um, I think, a lot of important changes in the definition of fiduciary duty, the broadening of it so that it captures, for instance, issues of environment and climate change, that it captures more the social responsibilities of businesses, and it reflects this fundamental reality that companies are social institutions. They're not purely um, there just to generate profit uh, for their shareholders. The responsibilities are broader. Now, that being said, the last comment here is, this requires a lot of work um, because it's fine to say what I just said, but even what I just said is way too vague. And boards are gonna need you know, clear guidance on exactly what's included in a fiduciary duty. So there's a lot of work that governments and the securities regulators are going to have to do on a worldwide basis to nail this down so that boards understand exactly what their responsibilities are. I think we're inching again toward that, but we're a long way from, from being where, where we need to be.
1: I wonder then whether there's anything you could see uh, the government of Canada doing Um, To bring about this new kind of sustainable finance model closer to a reality where we are a global leader? Um,
2: Well, I mean, the answer to that is yes, but it's not enough. So um, yes, in the sense that, as I just said, for instance, uh, securities regulators in Canada, but this isn't unique to Canada, they have work to do on particularly this important issue that you raised a minute ago, with respect to to fiduciary duties, and that's something that that governments um, at various levels are going to have to take on. But I think I think we need to think a little more broadly about this issue. So, as I said, you know, government's part of the solution, but it's not the whole solution. And that I think in the period that's ahead. Um, You know, if you take the spirit of sustainable finance, which right now has a lot to do with climate um, and addressing that fundamentally important issue, um, that to get to real answers there, uh, that's going to require a lot more collaboration between, put it this way, the public sector and the private sector, that the real answers there lie in collaboration between those those two big sectors of our of our society. Now that's not easy to do, Um, but I do think that's the answer. And I think we need to be careful about saying, well, the government's gonna do this or the government's gonna solve that. Certainly the government has a role to play, but in effect, we all have a role to play. uh, And certainly private sector businesses have a very large role to to play as do others. Um, For instance, um, the pension fund that I used to, to lead, Um, big pension funds, um, big institutional investors, they have a role to play um, in where they invest, how they invest, um, in the kinds of things that they do, investing in clean infrastructure, et cetera. That's one thing. I was very pleased uh, to see recently all of the Canadian pension funds and acting together, they manage over a trillion dollars, well over a trillion dollars of assets, getting together to insist that the companies. Uh, that they invest in improve uh, their disclosure, improve their ESG disclosure, that they're using the power of a trillion to a trillion and a half um, dollars of assets to influence how companies report. And by influencing how they report, influencing how they act. Um, so, you know, big institutional investors, they have a role uh, to play. Certainly governments do too. I mean, I think we need, um, a, lar- a plan for how Canada's going to manage uh, this transition to a lower carbon economy. Um, I think we've got to um, and this involves both public and private sector. I think uh, in our economy we need a plan for uh, the future of the Alberta economy that's going through some some very difficult uh, time uh, right now that where we find new generations of growth for, for the Alberta economy and carbon capture and hydrogen and lots of other things. So, you know, my point being here, governments are important, governments have got a job to do. So do investors, very importantly, so do private sector businesses. Um, and this is really to get our arms around an issue as big and complex in this as this is really gonna require opening up, I think, a new era of collaboration between between governments and other actors.
1: Mm-hmm. I wonder then, are there any jurisdictions, um, any other countries that you see moving in the right direction? Um, how can Canada learn from their strategies if, if there are indeed good examples?
2: Yeah, I think the, uh, you know, everybody's still at the beginning here and no one's yet, I think, proven, um, there's no, there's not proven success yet because it's early days. But I think looking toward Europe, is probably the right direction to look, um, both uh, at the level of individual countries there, uh, and especially some of the Nordic countries, I think are, are leaders here. But in particular, I have to say um, that the European Union itself um, at the supranational level has uh, really taken some, Important decisions recently, and I think has established itself as uh, as a global leader um, in this. That's true. Uh, I mean, they've done a few things. First, at the end of uh, the end of last year, they published a very comprehensive and pretty compelling um, uh, kind of green deal, green new deal, uh, to guide. Europe's evolution to being carbon neutral by 2050. But the good thing about it was it was the comprehensiveness of that plan. Then they followed it up a little bit later um, with um, a commitment to mobilize something on the order of a trillion euros of investment, um, a kind of sustainable finance fund in a way um, that they're working with, not just governments, but others to provide the capital that's going to required, that's going to be required to get through this massive transition uh, that's required to a lower carbon economy. And then they followed that up with, uh, on the regulatory side, uh, you know a lot of good and important work with respect to uh, disclosure and risk, et cetera for, for companies. So I mentioned those three things only because I think the comprehensiveness, of that plan. The comprehensiveness and the detail of that plan is something of a model um, that's there for Canada, for other countries, certainly for the United States, which has (laughs) a lot to do, shall we say, uh, in this area. But that, the breadth, comprehensiveness, the way they've gone at this, I think there are important lessons there.
1: Mm -hmm. Um, So I wonder, as a kind of final question, um, beyond what we've covered today, what are the big considerations that Canada should keep in mind moving forward? Are there any tenets that we must adhere to above all?
2: Um, well, again, that's a good, a good and hard question. Um, so I guess the first one in my mind is to, by and large is to try to change the way we think about some of these issues um, in this sense that often addressing the climate challenge is seen and understood by many people, not everyone, thank goodness, but many people as a constraint. It's something that limits what we can do. I think we need to turn the telescope around and think about this differently, that, that addressing these issues, addressing climate issues, sustainable finance, other things, that these are opportunities big opportunities for innovation and for growth. So as we invest to build a lower carbon economy, we're not sacrificing growth. I think we have a big opportunity to create new generations of growth. So changing the way we think and putting an emphasis on innovation and growth um, as we move to address these issues, to me, that's probably uh, the most important uh, change. Maybe a few others, um, you know, I think in this, w- you need to think about scale, you need to think big. Uh, so Canada needs, uh, and that's one of the roles of the Canada Infrastructure Bank, but I think we need a, a pipeline of a sort of clean energy projects, things that private capital can see on the horizon uh, and that can motivate them to wanna move in these, in these directions. So impact and scale, I think is also important. A third one for Canada, in particular, something I touched on earlier. Um, You know, we have benefited a lot in the past from the level of investment, et cetera, that's gone into the production of hydrocarbons in Alberta, and to some degree, Saskatchewan. Obviously that's changing. So there's an important regional dimension to this that is gonna affect the way Canada works. And I think being sensitive to those regional issues as we begin and step up and accelerate our efforts to address these broader issues, I think that's gonna be really important uh, in keeping Canada a unified country. Um, and then I guess the last one, and I'll end with this, is in dealing with all these issues, we can't lose sight of the fact that you know, we are not an island, um, that we are connected to the world. And therefore, while we need to move domestically, uh, that's imperative, we also need to move at the same time internationally and in conjunction with our allies uh, in Europe, hopefully now with the Biden administration in the United States who will be more interested in addressing these issues. So continuing to coordinate our efforts on a global basis, I think is also gonna be going to be very important.
1: Uh, thank you so much, Mr. Sabia for all your insight.
2: Real pleasure, good to talk to you. Thank you, thanks for the opportunity.
0: Once again, that was Michael Sabia. You have been listening to a special episode of Beyond the Headlines. Today's show was produced by Duncan Cooper and Taya Cooper. The views expressed on this show do not necessarily reflect the views of the producers nor the Monk School of Global Affairs and Public Policy. Be sure to check out podcasts of all our episodes on our website at www.beyondtheheadlines.net, as well as on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. If you're a fan of our show or want to stay up to date with policy issues in Canada, follow us on Twitter, at beyond underscore headlines. You can also check us out on Facebook or Instagram. Be sure to tune in next week as we continue to take public policy discussions out of the hallways and onto the airwaves.